Hey, Dame. Yo. Do you happen to have any idea who this episode is brought to you by? Oh, I think I have a clue. I think I know. <laughs> this episode of Ergo is brought to you by Overcast, an independent podcast app that embraces the open world of podcasting instead of locking it down. No exclusives, no premium content, no paywalls, just a great podcast app for everyone. And if you know Ergo, we love independent and we love shit not being locked down. So <laughs> so go ahead and get Overcast for free on the App Store. We need people showing up for us. And this is the opportunity to do it. Otherwise, it's going to set us all back, especially black and brown communities. I'm Daniel. I'm Damon. And welcome to Climate Change Makers, presented by Elevate. For over 20 years, Elevate's been working to create a just and equitable world in which everyone has clean and affordable heat, power, and water in their homes and communities, no matter who they are or where they live. We're so excited to be back for a second season, talking with some of the country's most impactful environmental justice visionaries about what ideas guide their work, which strategies have been effective, and what advice they have for Elevate as the organization works to put people and the planet first in the fight to build equity through climate action. On this season two premiere, we are so excited to get to know Marnice Jackson. Marnice is an advocate, organizer, and mother from Pontiac, Michigan. She's the regional organizer for the NAACP's Environmental and Climate Justice Program. She's also on the leadership team of the Midwest Building Decarbonization Coalition and a council member on the state of Michigan's Climate Solutions Council. It was really great talking to Marnice, and as you're about to hear, she grounds her framing and her work within this notion of climate reparations and pushes that as folks, entities, particularly folks with privilege and power, uh, show up to do this work, that it has to be centering and connected to those who are impacted and that these environmental dynamics that we are responding to are deeply intersectional and therefore so should our responses be. We start this conversation with the same two-part question we start every episode with. In this time, this moment, this season, how is the world, both people and everything that isn't people, treating Marnice and how is she treating the world? The world is treating me really well. I'm leaning more into relationships, being more intentional about having a relationship with nature because of COVID. I, I'm indoors all the time. And so I'm making sure that I embrace that air, the sun, I need that. So the world has been good to me because we've been having sunshine here in Michigan, even though for the last couple of days, it seems like fall. But y'all, if y'all know what Michigan is set up like, you know, it's kind of like different. Um, How am I treating the world? I believe I am treating the world well because the way I'm set up, I am here to save the world. I believe I am doing my part of what I can control, but I can also do better. If we're going to be talking about environmental climate justice, I can do better about better practices, better recycling, not consuming a lot. I'm treating the world good, but I can be better. Mm. That uh, I think probably rings true with everybody. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> uh, you mentioned some of the, the specifics of uh, the way Michigan is set up. And so I want to kind of start there. As we step into the season two and we're talking to folks outside of Illinois and the Chicago area, I think Damon and I both kind of have this sense of acknowledging the things we do not know 
And so in conversations around uh, environment and environmental justice, when people think of Michigan, I think there's the like Flint conversation, the Detroit and urban ag conversation. And then there's just this sense of like the rest of it is little cabins in the woods. And so I'm wondering if you could start off by placing where your work sits at home um, and what we need to know, even to start the conversation about what that place is like. I hold a lot of different positions, okay? On a local level, I'm a person. I'm, I'm tiny. I'm That's a, a person. A, a good starting place, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm a person, right? Like everybody's beholden to all these other organizations, but I li- I'm from Pontiac, Michigan. Um, even though I was born in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, um, I'm from Pontiac, Michigan. It's just home, right? Why well, move out to the suburbs like a lot of Black people do and become like them? White people. <laughs> uh, excuse me, Daniel. Um, no, we're getting to I, it. No, we're, 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 <laughs> we're here to pod. No, no, no. I did that with my kids going to school out. They're in a um, predominantly white school district, and like most black people do, we move out to the suburbs because we don't want to live in a hood. Pontiac is a suburb, technically. However, it is also hood. We in the richest county in Michigan, I believe, but it's hood here, and I'm fine with that. Because working on environmental, racial justice and all these other issues, you have to meet the people who are impacted by these issues. So locally, I'm a person. I'm involved in my community. I hold um, an NAACP environmental climate justice uh, position, and we're working on um, getting a sustainable, well, we actually have a sustainability office here in Oakland County now. Also, energy efficiency and building decarbonization here in the city on a regional level, I'm a board member of the East Michigan Environmental Action Council. This council really serves Detroit, but also southeastern Michigan on environmental and climate issues. And this organization took me in and showed me the grassroots organizing of the environmental and climate movement because I was lacking that. I mean, I have organizing experience, but ECJ, I didn't have all that experience. Um, on a state level, I've been appointed to the state of Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmore's Council on Climate Solutions. And I work with a lot of um, industry folk uh, who's involved in the movement. It's a strategic role because I, I'm very palatable to a lot of people, white people, just to be quite honest, I am. I have built up a way of telling white people that you're racist and, you know, if they start crying, okay, go get your tissue, go take care of yourself. Come back when you're ready, <laughs> you know, because you're, you're crying right now is not going to undo over 400 years of systematic racism, oppression of people, right? So that's what I have, that Black girl magic to tell white people, you, you guys are full of shit sometimes, <laughs> you know? But it's not all white people, let me be clear, okay? Mm-hmm. But we all got something to work on because Black and brown people, we perpetuate white supremacy culture as well. We don't like to hear that, but we do it. We've been indoctrinated into it, so what makes you think you wouldn't do that? So on a state level, that's what I do. And we're trying to make sure that Michigan has a clean, healthy plan and that's, you know, we're accessible to black and brown communities. So that's one of my appointed positions. So in my national position, I'm a board member of the U.S. Climate Action Network. Um, it's a network of all types of climate organizations, labor organizations um, to work on federal climate plans and also international I work a lot on the justice, equity, inclusion um, team, and then also 
nominations and how the organization is going to operate. In my employment capacity, I am the co-director of the Midwest Building Decarbonization Coalition, which is a new coalition that started in 2020 to focus on indoor air quality, causes asthma, respiratory issues. And then you also have high utility rates and high utility rates can um, cause an economic issue. So you're getting hit the health way, which is also an economic issue if you do not have quality health insurance, but then also economic with having high utility rates. So that has been my focus. If we had scaled that any bigger, we would have been galactic. That was I loved how we <laughs> built up. <laughs> One, thank you for giving us all that context of, of all the work that you do. We we've talked a little bit about like the 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 hood herbs or the the this the breaking down of the hood and suburb kind of dichotomy and just the way you even named it. I think we usually only think of it as like a political or socioeconomic construct, but talking about the air quote hood as like an environmental reality is something that I think is really valuable. But my question to start you off comes from the lessons that we learned in our first season of Climate Change Makers, and one of the central things we heard folks say is like this need to move beyond seat at the table politics. What has been the norm is, you know, inclusion or representation nominally or marginally. And I hear you say you get invited to sit and be a part of a lot of tables. But the push that a lot of our our previous guests said that we need is not just being present or being represented, but that localized communal experience and expertise being centered in the leadership of how we come up with solutions or how we direct investments or make collective plans. What are the ways in which you're seeing communal experience being implemented in these institutional spaces? And where is like the struggle and fight to make sure that you just being a seat at the table or you just being there to tell white folks about themselves is not being marginalized or tokenized is the word. Okay. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I'm going to go back to the Midwest Building Decarbonization Coalition. Originally, it did not start as representative of Black and brown communities um, until I got here. So, yeah, it was clearly a tokenized position. And it's an after the fact um, that you thought about, oh, my gosh, we don't have Black and brown people at this table. Right. And, you know, I have talked to my other colleague, you know, I'm like, when I'm doing this work. I intentionally invite everybody. You want to do this thing? Come on. And I have a diverse group of friends, right? Or people that I'm around. And so when I asked them that question of like, you guys looked around, y'all ain't seen no black or brown people in the room. Like, y'all just forgot? (laughs) (laughs) Simple omission. (laughs) I mean, so, so what do you think when we're like, after the fact, like, no, we don't want to be involved because... You weren't intentional in the beginning. You guys have the privilege of not even thinking about your own bubble, right? We we think about everybody. And so now that I have told them, you know, we got to do this thing over, right? (laughs) If you want this to um, (laughs) be done in an equitable, just quality way, we have to start over. And I understand you want to advance all these policies at the state level, the regional, national level, and then you have all this Biden money coming down. So everybody wants access to that. But I'm like, we can't do anything now because you didn't have people at the table in the very beginning. And so there has been some repair and acknowledgement, I have to say, within the coalition spaces that we messed this up, right? And now we're slowing things up. So when I think about communal and collective, it's 
okay to hit pause and start over. But the thing is for white people, you have to acknowledge, you have to embrace being human, that you all don't know everything. And that if you want to do equity the right way, that this is not just a buzzword, you have to actually put some work in. That means raising your consciousness of how you show up. These conversations about anti-racism, anti-oppression, white supremacy culture, or just simply saying Black without stuttering, you know. (laughs) (laughs) know? (laughs) I can't just say African-American Black people. (laughs) You know, I'm like, without stuttering, like, I, I see people are getting more comfortable. I'm collaborating two frameworks, right? Essentially bringing black and brown people together with white people. This is honestly what we all should be doing, right? I don't really believe in integration because it killed the black community economically. However, to act on climate and environmental justice because it impacts everybody, we have to be together. I'm all about advancing Black people. Heck, that's my role in life. You might even be in an association that is geared towards advancement. <laughs> <It's> been- <laughs> I mean, so, I mean, so I, can help I mean, I am a member, but you know, it's just, it's like, I, that's that's just where I'm at. That's what I have to work for. But the struggle in these spaces is that trying to make things communal. There's a lack of education, especially in the environmental climate field. It's very technical. So there's a, a learning gap between both sides. Another gap is, um, or another struggle is definitely perpetuating white supremacy culture. And one thing is the sense of urgency. Yes, we have to act on climate within 10 years. And it's probably eight years now. I can't, and you know, that report came out in 2018, the IPCC report. The clock is ticking, right? However, Black and brown communities, we don't operate in the sense of urgency. Hell, when you see Black people get killed every five minutes on TV, we have to make sure that our kids are not getting discriminated. But then also we have the issues that are in where we live, right? The lack of food quality, the criminalization. So when we come into these spaces as nonprofit members of nonprofits, we're beholden to uh, foundations funding. And so we have to advance what they want to do, which is the sense of urgency. However, they're not looking at the whole spectrum like we can't move that fast. Your urgency is not my urgency. When I'm trying to get food on the table, right? I'm trying to work two jobs. I'm trying to make sure that I don't have a mental breakdown from being indoors for like the past year because of this pandemic, right? (laughs) So the struggle is that I don't think people understand their positional power and their privilege when we're in these spaces. And it's hard to make it communal because- we're trying to slow things up, but then there's this sense of urgency around acting on climate. Otherwise, we all going to die, right? <laughs> so that is the hardest part. Um, and then also fighting against the narrative of Black people. We're always angry. And then when we get into these spaces, talking about environmental climate, justice, building decarbonizations, on outside looking in, it's very, you see a lot of white people, right? However, we've been doing this work, right? We've been environmental climate justice activists. We've been trying to conserve our energy simply by telling our kids to turn off the lights because you're not paying on my energy bill, right? We've already been doing this work. 
but it's kind of like popular now because there's money behind it. Yeah. To that point, one of the things that I heard was this um, weaponization of expertise, right? And, and how that gets wielded in those conversations and which types of expertise are valued institutionally. I'm curious in that communal building work of, of trying to navigate these contradictions and these tensions, are there examples of communal processes or this type of coming together that you're pulling from or you see yourself in lineage of? I'm still a student and I'm still learning, but I have to go back to the spaces here in Detroit, Michigan. Of course, always paying homage to stolen land, making sure that we respecting our elders and that also young people know a lot too. So it's a lot of cross collaboration around intergenerational movement and that the environmental climate justice is an intergenerational movement. I think also healing justice and repair, like say if someone does something wrong in the movement, that there's an opportunity to repair those relationships, but then also understanding each person's role in the movement. I found working in Detroit or with the East Michigan Environmental Action Council that everybody has a role and that we've really been stepping back to make sure that we check on each other because this is a time where we're going through a lot. You know, we may not say it, but we're seeing a lot that may impact us. So I would have to say healing justice work in these um, different spaces is really making sure that we take time out for ourselves, just simply asking and checking on each other rather than getting so involved into the work, like building transformational relationships. Like um, I have to say, Baba Darrow, who is uh, one of the co-directors of East Michigan Environmental Action Council. If I text him about something, he always immediately say, how are you doing? Right. And then also, yes, I have the privilege because I've been asked to be in these spaces. However, I'm always bringing like one of my friends who are not even involved. I won't have all the power, right? I'm sharing the power. Yes, I have a position of power because I'm in these different positions. However, I'm sharing my power so you can know. Tell me what you want me to do. Tell me what you want me to push back on Governor Gretchen Whitmore or in these neoliberal spaces, like these progressive white spaces. Tell me what you want me to do because I don't know everything, right? Of course, I'm making an informed decision because my positional power is that I, I can talk to white people any type of way. Shout out to you. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not a total. I'm not a total a-hole. You're not you know, abusing like, it, but you have I'm that power. Not, I'm definitely not doing that. But I'm just like, okay, let's talk about what you just said. <laughs> no, that, that's 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 valuable. In talking about power, I think there's a, a lot of power in language and vocabulary and how we name things. And so from your position, I kind of want to just get into the technical a little bit, or maybe it's not a technical response that comes to you, but we're word nerds and we like to to break down a definition. Unabashedly. <laughs> um, I've heard you a few times intentionally use the word of decarbonization. What is the importance around that vocabulary? Are there limitations? Is it getting buzzwordy? What does that offer in using that vocabulary to talk about the work and the fight that, that needs to go on? Climate justice is for us to rebuild our food, transit, water, and energy systems. Decarbonization is just a broad term of making sure that we move away from fossil fuels. Building decarbonization is really just focused on indoor air quality in your buildings. Coming back to climate justice, 
owning that you are centering Black, Brown, low-income communities of color and that you are centering their ideas that you are actually really bringing them in because these communities have been doing the work longer than it became a buzzword, okay? Any group, nonprofit, organization that is not environmental and climate justice focused, it's great that you have a section on your website or you have a portfolio that you're doing the work. (laughs) You know, that's awesome. However, we know that you got grant money to do this work. And the money is not going to these groups. So reallocate your portfolio to these groups. That's what climate reparations look like. You, quite frankly, owe Black and brown communities this money, right? You just have the positional power and the XX because your organization is uh, mainstream. When I think about organizations using climate justice, like it's the second nature, sometimes I think they're working on climate action. Climate justice is lifting up marginalized communities. Climate justice is also intersectional with all these other issues, right? When Hurricane Katrina happened, a good example is the criminal justice system. Or a bad one. <laughs> yes. A, a, an effective <laughs> example, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The, the, the criminal justice you know, system in New Orleans, when the returning citizens um, came out, they didn't have access to their files or to get a license and things of that nature. So because of this huge storm due to climate change, which is going to keep happening, these individuals who didn't have access to the stuff that they needed to come back to society caused them to probably go back into the system. Or we could think about here in uh, Flint, for example, when that water went bad, who was also drinking that water? individuals who were incarcerated. Was their life not valuable because they committed a crime? They have to drink the water. So I'm thinking that climate justice really hones in on all the issues in an intersectional way, and it doesn't miss any community. Um, Climate action to me, (laughs) it's just more so you're not really solving the systemic oppression that comes along with climate and environmental issues. You're just kind of perpetuating it. And I know it's because a lot of us get grant money to do this work and hell, nobody wants to be out of a job, right? But nonprofit organizations are supposed to be about working on something that's awesome and saving the world. However, they actually are not solving the issues. That's just climate action, right? We're going to take action on this work. We're now we're going to solve the systematic issue as to why it keeps happening, why we keep getting these hurricanes, why individuals in Black and brown communities don't have access to clean water. You're just going to show up and say you did something to satisfy that grant requirement. I think of it kind of as the difference between fixing and repair. Exactly. Like you, can, you can fix a water pipe, but if you don't take into account why that pipe was the way it was, you're missing this huge piece that will really limit the possibility of the work. Yeah, I also look at it from a social science, like micro and macro. I have a lot of friends who are case managers and social work. Like you got a person who's going to come get food stamps, right? And they need it. You're a social worker. This is what you do. Did you ever think about the macro as the reason why they have to keep coming down here to get the dog on food stamps? Can we get to that issue? Um, So yes, I do totally agree with you, Daniel really moved by that notion of repair or climate reparations as a way to ground in this notion of justice as opposed to just action. And so I'm hearing in that, like, 
it is not just about being liberal and taking like a virtue signal stance of, yes, we all know that environmental destruction is not a good thing, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, but but the, the distinction I hear you making is not just being on the other side of the problem, but actually centering the impacts of that issue as opposed to just trying to put a good name or a good face on do-goodership. Uh, it, it is about addressing that environmental racism has destroyed and impacted communities in ways that are really irreparable. Uh, but if you want to be on the side of justice, that you have to center those people. So that that feels really strong to me. And I really appreciated what you offered in breaking down decarbonization as a framework, because it allows us to approach the work in two ways. Because when I hear the home as the site, right, like that can be local, that could be a block club, that can be, you know, door to door doing that work. But that's also something we can address on a macro level, which is one of like the tensions, I think, in all movements, but definitely in environmental <laughs> movement, because the problem is so big, but the work still has to start small. So I really am taking in that that notion of decarbonization and making sure that each home has the right quality of air. Each home has the right utilities to be able to feed their families in a way that is in alignment with our environment. And that's something we can do on a small level and on a big level. So I'm just, I just wanted to pull some of what I'm hearing as we're, we're going deeper into these conversations. So, so thank you for that. You know, you, you've mentioned a lot of this, I think, throughout the conversation, but to kind of put a bow on it, you know, the, the question that we ask every guest on this show to close is for an organization like Elevate. So we, we've talked a lot about the complications and the possibilities of, of this nonprofit work. What are the lessons, advice, or just things that you feel like people in that position need to know that you've learned through study and experience that could help them do their job in a way that not just is, quote, better or more efficient, but creates more space for this transformative possibility? I would say, if you're really about doing equity work, move your money to these organizations that are doing the work. Your organization is not going to die if you do that because they're really the ones who are doing the work on the ground. I will also say that when you're looking to bring people of color into your organization, you need to make sure that everybody has a anti-racist or anti-oppression compass of like where you stand as an organization. Like there's no way in heck a black and brown person or they just person should come to your organization and feel like they're being tokenized or that you have racist practices and that you want that person to fix your issues. No, racism is a white people problem. So if that's in your organization, you need to fix this. And quite frankly, if you can't fix it and you need them to do it, then you need to pay them. Not no crumbs, right? <laughs> like for real, like I shouldn't have to teach you how to not treat me, right? Would you want to be treat treated <laughs> in the same manner? No. So I would say, um, look at your practices. And then quite honestly, you have to hire Black, Brown, and Indigenous people because this field, especially building decarbonization, is saturated with white men. Nothing against white men. That's what y'all went to school for. But you have to- no, uh, we, we got a little bit against them, just as a group. 
white men? No, we got a little bit. <laughs> well, you know, demographically, not, not each and every one, but but not as, each, as a whole, not, not each and every one. We got some you explaining know, to do. <laughs> you, you know, that is so correct. You know, it's not each and every one of you, but white men. Woo, Lord, you guys got to give up some of that power. Once we get pluralized, <laughs> like like y'all, so we got me tripping, like. <laughs> Yo, just share the power. Like, we're not going to do to you what y'all did to us. It's not environmentally sustainable. <laughs> Even if we wanted to. It's, right. it's not and in our like, interest. And we know that's what you're afraid of. That's where what happened when, you know, 45 and now. Y'all scared. <laughs> but I think really being intentional about hiring Black and Brown people in leadership positions not a token Black person who's just going to perpetuate white supremacy culture. Let's be clear. It's time out for them, too. Token Negro, sorry. Yeah, no, yes. that's I'm, not I'm working. I'm with you. I'm with you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. That's not working. Uh, so, And we see it. We see it. So don't do that, okay? Don't hire. Don't get people on the board who's just going to perpetuate white supremacy culture, okay? Don't do that. Mm-hmm. So it's not just about Black and brown faces. It's about Black and Indigenous liberation being present and centered in this organizing. Yes. Liberation is the key. We have to liberate our minds, our hearts from what we've been indoctrinated into. And that's everybody. So um, also, lastly, when you're working with other coalitions, organizations tends to pit us against each other, black and brown groups against each other. And we end up trying to fight over some crumbs. And this, this is for everybody. You guys have to recognize that that's in the playbook, right? That's when we're not going to trust you. And that's when we're not going to like really mess with you. And then understand that we're going to all make mistakes. I'm not saying that all Black and brown people, Indigenous people haven't made mistakes. We're all human and that we're coming in into this work together. Um, and that's the, that's the great part about communal work, that there's an opportunity to repair, come together, cry it out, laugh it out over food and drinks. We need people showing up for us. And this is the opportunity to do it. Otherwise, it's going to set us all back especially black and brown communities. And I'm saying this in a space with a white man because I know the playbook. I study social movements. And so for you, Daniel, you have to tell the next white man, you need to give up this position of power. Like, bruh. (laughs) But if we wanted to um, hurt you, like you guys did us (laughs) and our ancestors, and, you know, we would have been and did it. We're not that type of people, right? However, don't try it. You know what I'm saying? Because we can go there, okay? If we really want to save the planet, Mother Earth, we're interdependent on her and everything that's in here. So we have to really come together and stop the shenanigans, the internal shenanigans, I call it. I'm very anti-shenanigan. This is a firmly <laughs> anti-shenanigan space. <laughs> I got time for that. It's, it's taking over too much time. Yeah, I don't have let's time. cut out the shenanigans, please. <laughs> <laughs> There we have it, folks. We're so grateful for Marnice Jackson for her time and words and wisdom and the pushes she offered to us, to listeners, and particularly folks doing this work. And even Daniel got a little assignment there at the end to to get out here and talk to these white boys. (laughs) All right. Message received. I I mean, I think what Marnice really provided the prompt and the provocation for is to think about what are the spaces in your life where you need to be more active and vocal in doing this work. And I think. That's a great reminder for me as well as I'm sure for uh, for our listeners too.
yeah, for everybody. I, I said it jokingly, uh, but the, the thing that Marnice was offering that really resonates to me is that we have all internalized and reperpetuate these systems and how we show up to the work that we do. And so one of the things she kept saying is even black and brown people have internalized white supremacy. So uh, we all have the assignment to find folks in our spaces to challenge and to work with and to heal with uh, so that we can do better in terms of, like she said, saving the world. And we're so excited over the next few months to bring more people into that conversation. Uh, Season two is gonna be great. Like we said, we're gonna be talking to folks from all over this land. Make sure that you subscribe to Climate Changemakers wherever you get your podcasts. Hit us with a little review, five-star situation. Um, You can also find our other podcast, Ergo, A-I-R-G-O, on all your podcast apps. Make sure you get in tune with what Elevate's doing at elevatenp.org. And we'll be back next month with the next episode of Season 2 of Climate Changemakers. Much love to the people. Peace.